Oh, hello, friends. Welcome back to Modern Wisdom. Before I get on to today's guest, I need to give you a warning that you will only be receiving one episode per week for the next couple of weeks. I'm jetting off again to Bali, which means that you will unfortunately be left with just one Modern Wisdom episode every seven days until I get back. But today's episode will make up for it. Professor Paul Bloom is a psychologist from the University of Yale. He's just a crazy, interesting guy, someone that swims in the circles of philosophy and psychology and looks at the first principles of why we are the way we are in the way that Professor Bloom does. Is It's just an absolute dream for me. So, I mean, we get to talk today about why empathy is bad, the case for rational compassion, how pleasure works and why we like what we like. We talk about racism, uh, how to have a productive conversation why we love people who have died. I mean, these the questions are just so cool. Very, very interesting for me to sink my teeth into. Hopefully, will be the same for you as well. Uh, before we get into it, I recent, re- recently, I recently, recently released a video uh, talking about me starting therapy. Might not be quite what you expected, but that's on the Modern Wisdom YouTube channel, so you should go and check that out as well. But for now, please welcome Professor Paul Bloom. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. I'm joined by Professor Paul Bloom. Paul, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to have you on. I've been listening to a lot of your work recently, some fantastic interviews with Sam Harris, some podcasts that you did a little while ago, but um, some super interesting stuff. We've been talking about empathy and about resilience a lot on the show. Recently discussed Elliot Kipchoge's uh, sub-two-hour marathon performance, which was a a very resilient uh, a physical feat that people have seen. Um, so we've got a lot, a lot to delve into today. But how would you describe the work that you do if someone hadn't met you before and, and didn't know you? So I'm interested in, I'm a psychology professor at Yale, and I'm interested in human nature. And so my work goes from topic to topic, and they're kind of related. Um, broadly, I'm interested in pleasure, what we like why we like it. I'm really interested in morality. Um, how do we explain our intuitions about good and evil? Um, how do we explain our, our, our um, who we hate, who we admire, and what kind of moral judgments are good for us? Like, how should we think morally? And there my work kind of blends into, into philosophy. And that was my most recent book, Against, Against Empathy. And, um, and I'm interested in a cluster of things. I'm interested in the self. I'm interested in um, how we think about uh, things that aren't like us, like robots or um, non-human animals. Uh, interested in religion, where religious belief comes from. Most recently, I've been interested in suffering. So I have a kind of dream job where I, you know, I get I get paid perfectly fine to uh, to just ask some really cool questions and my students and my colleagues work on them. It must feel nice to be able to indulge your intellectual curiosity on a yearly basis and just keep on changing that up every so often yeah they haven't fired me yet and it is it is it is, it is very nice <laughs> um so you touched on a word there morality and I, I think a lot of the stuff that you're talking about are questions that people take for granted or their appearance that the, is something that people just take as fact do you often find when you begin to look at the first principles or real strip things back to basics, do you find a bit of a disconnect or people just looking at the questions that you're asking and thinking, well, why are you asking that? Why are you asking what is morality? Or why are you asking what is empathy? It's interesting. It's a good question. My work tends to fall into one of two extremes. So I'm sometimes interested in things that are honest to God puzzling for a lot of people. Like you ask people, you know, what do people get out of... um, uh, sadomasochistic sex or hot saunas or, um, or watching movies that terrify them. And people say, I don't know, that's really cool that we do. But some of my questions, and this is what you're getting at, involve questioning things that we take for granted. And William James, a long time ago, a great psychologist, you know, said, it's only to a scholar can you ask a question like, you know, why do people get flushed when everybody's looking at them? Why do we get hungry when we smell something delicious? 
And these are questions like, you know, why does the apple fall from the tree? You know, you gotta be in some way, step back and be a scholar and sort of say, say, well, okay, sure that happens, that's obvious, but, but why do we work that way? And so for morality, you know, if you right now, you walked outside and you saw somebody slapping a child, just beating the crap out of a four-year-old, you would be shocked. You'd probably spring to action. Why? And it's not enough for you to say, well, of course, it's just natural, it's obvious. Okay, let's spell it out, what's bothering you? Can you imagine a person who would find this funny or have no interest at all? And those are sort of, sort of questions I ask. Yeah, I imagine that that must get you into some interesting interesting situations. Thinking about some of the times, some of the people that I spend my time with and talking to, and every so often you do, you posit a question or make a point about something and half of the room sort of turns and looks and gives you this. Yeah. Side eye. Yeah. When they discover you're really not one of them. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> some, yeah. Well, they're sort of looking at things from the outside perspective in our business. Yeah. I think to, to fly a flag for the outsiders, I, I definitely find those questions more interesting than, than not being able to look at them with perspective. Yeah. So let's talk about empathy. It's something that we've discussed yeah. recently on the podcast. I often use the cliche that I have a crippling level of empathy, but then. Ah. I don't actually know if I do have a crippling level of empathy or if I have a crippling level of compassion. And I'd quite like to work out whether which one of those it is. So some days I regret calling my book against empathy because the word empathy has a lot of meanings. And I don't care what you call it. Like it's So if some people just take empathy to mean kindness or goodness. And I think everybody should be kind and good. And I don't think there's such a a thing as a crippling level of goodness. You should be as maximally good as you can. That'd be great. You just to have, to have a lot of goodness means you're a good person. But there's a more folk, there's a set of more focused meanings that are more interesting. And one sense of empathy, which is what I'm at targeting in my book, is putting yourself in another person's shoes, feeling what they feel, absorbing their pain. And a lot of people describe this as a very good thing. I actually think in many ways it could be a very bad thing. And you actually put your finger on one aspect of it, which is you look at the people who help other people face to face, day to day, um, people who work, uh, um, firefighters, comps, nurses, doctors, shrinks, people who, who, um, who are ER workers. Here's what they have in common. They're pretty low empathy. They, they care, care about people. They understand people. They want to help people. But they could be with somebody who's screaming in agony and they're cool with it. They don't feel it. And then they, you know, then they, they, they treat people for nine hours and then they go home with their family and they order sushi and they watch TV and, and, and they don't get upset. Now, if you have a crippling level of empathy, you could not do that. You may not last a week doing that because the pain of others might get to you too much. And so this is on way of answering your question, whether it's empathy or something else. So, I'll ask you, if you with somebody who's very depressed or very upset or very angry, does that affect you in a way that you're not comfortable with? Yes. Then you have high empathy, my friend. And there's nothing wrong with that there's, as long as you keep it under wraps. But it means that there are certain things you probably are not as good at doing as others, well, other people would be. Uh, you would not do well as a therapist. Because a therapist, you might spend eight hours a day, nine hours a day, <clears throat> dealing with people who are anxious and depressed and weeping and and deeply upset. And if you can if you absorb their feelings, if you feel what they feel, you will be run through a ringer each day. So I have a friend of mine and she's she's a shrink. And so she tells me she works like 50 minute session, pause, 50 minute session, pause, 50 minute. And I say, that must drive you up the wall dealing with those people who are so upset. And she says to me, um, no, I actually find it fascinating. I love solving their problems. I, I try to work, try to figure this out and everything. I find it exhilarating. And she's wired up differently than me. And it's why she could do the job and I can't. What's your disposition? Um, highly empathic in that way. Uh, in that, and, and so in some way, when I, I talk about the problems of empathy and say there are better ways to do things, better ways to be good and getting caught up uh, in the pain of others. To some extent, it's a sort of self-therapy thing. Like, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm talking to myself here. 
<laughs> for a couple of hundred pages. Yeah, well, <laughs> I, I put in some jokes. I, I tell some stories. I mean, it, it's also it's also just just to make sure it's not. I don't want people to think my work is entirely self therapy. It's it's that a lot of people, even people who aren't empathics, think that empathy is the way to go for morality. And I discuss in the book all sorts of reasons why not. So one is the reason that you raised, which is the extent of a personal connection impairing your your role as a helper. But the more general thing is that empathy is powerfully biased. We know this from everyday life. We know this from uh, a a thousand experiments. So I'm looking at you, you know, you're you're, uh, a guy is sort of same rough, same skin color, ethnicity as me, English speaker, similar background, whatever. So I could feel for you. You're my kind of guy. I could feel your pain. If I heard you were in trouble, I could get upset by it, by that. That's how empathy works. But what if you were different? What if you were different skin color, different gender, you didn't speak English? What if you were disgusting in your, in your form, like you were a homeless person or something you hadn't washed for a long period of time? What if you were frightening? All of those things shut down empathy. And so to extend, we can say intellectually, I think that uh, 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 a middle-aged white man from my, my city, his life matters just as much as somebody I will never see in sub-Saharan Africa. To the extent I can acknowledge that, it means I have to transcend empathy. Empathy pushes you to the, to the close, to the similar, and as moral reflective beings, we say we could do better than that. So what's, what's a purer version of empathy or what's a less biased version of empathy? So I think by its very nature, empathy is biased. Empathy is, 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 is impure. In some way, your question's like saying, I complain about racism, and you say, well, what's a purer form of racism? <laughs> well, racism... Do not racism answer that, please. Race, racism's going to be racism. Yeah. But I think the gist of your question is, what should we replace it with? And Correct. So I had this book against empathy, and the subtitle is The Case for Rational Compassion. And so rational is part of it, which is that you should sort of, as you go through the world, if you're a country, if you're an industry, if you're an individual, and try to make the world better for people and use your head to do so. Try to figure out what's, what's, you know, what's the best thing to do. But compassion is, I think, the answer to your question, which is you should care about people. You, you see this distinction in Buddhism. So Buddhism is very clear. It says, you know, you want to be a good person. You want to be a helper. Um, don't get caught up in other people's pain. Instead, love them. Fill, fill your heart with good cheer and happiness. You know, you see the, the, these, these Buddhist monks and they're radiating joy. Even when dealing with people who are, are in horrible pain and live in squalor. And that's the way to do it. Compassion and love, but not empathy. How do you define the difference, the specific differences then between empathy and compassion? Is it simply not putting yourself in somebody else's shoes? That's at the core of it. So, so maybe here's a good example. Suppose we're really good friends and I'm anxious. I'm coming to you and I'm upset about something. I'm just anxious. I'm upset. Maybe I'm in tears and everything. If you were to feel empathy for me, you would feel my anxiety. You would share my anxiety with me and you would be anxious too. But if you were to feel compassion for me, you would see I'm in distress and you'd want to make my distress go away. And you'd want to help me. And this could lead to two very different responses. If you felt empathy, you'd kind of be there, maybe crying a little bit with me and so on. And it wouldn't make me any better. In fact, to some extent, it makes me worse. I now have two problems, not just one. But if you felt compassion for me, you might try to cheer me up. You say, dude, calm down. Take a deep breath. It's not as bad. You would be a model for me with your calmness, with your authority. This is an old insight. We want what we want in friends, take sadness. What we want in friends is not somebody to multiply our sadness, but somebody to replace it with happiness. Now, I don't want to overstate this. There are things I think I, I wrote in my book that were a bit too strong. And I think there are some cases where we do want empathy. So a good example of this is anger. So suppose I come to you, my friend, and I'm furious at somebody. said, you know, this guy did this and he did that. And how would he treat me that way and everything? And I want you as a friend not to say, huh, I really appreciate your perspective. And I hope, <laughs> hope you found that. I want you to say, he said that to you. Let's, let's go to his house and, 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 and beat the crap out of him. 
you get angry too. That's what pals do. If I'm if I'm watching a TV show and I'm really into it, I don't want you to sit there next to me. You're saying that I want you to be into it too. I want us to share the feelings. And there's actually psychological work showing that just two people silently um, sharing each other's feelings while watching a movie or show and everything, there's a pleasure in that, and there's a connection in that. Mm. So I'm not against empathy in general. Empathy could do a lot for us. It could offer relationships. It could be a great source of pleasure. But as a source, as a moral guide, who should I help? Who should our country go to war with and everything? It is, I think, very limited. It strikes me that both empathy and compassion can't exist in isolation. If I was the only person on the planet and the planet was completely whitewashed except for me, is there such a thing as, well, I suppose there's self-compassion, but there's not such a thing as self-empathy, is there? No, it's hard to imagine what it would be to put yourself in your own shoes. It's kind of <laughs> mental gymnastics is hard to imagine. Um, you would, of course, feel much empathy and compassion for people, but they would just have to be from your imagination. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, people yeah. from your memories or people you imagine. And, and you know, if there's books left in this this apocalyptic world, um, you could feel plenty of empathy for characters and books. Yes. For instance. And, and again, I think, I think that, you know, I, I love stories and I, and I read a lot and, um, and the feeling of empathy in, in, in that sort of imagined pleasure is, is super important. Mm. I wouldn't want to that. So what immerses you in the story, right? Exactly. You know, there are other things that could immerse you in a story, but, you know, you often a story has an engaging character and you put yourself in his or her shoes and then you adopt their perspective and you go through life as them. So, you know, I'm I'm reading a Stephen King novel now, The Institute, and a lot of it is this boy who's trapped, uh, who's kidnapped and you really see the world through his eyes. Mm. Now, that's not such an interesting case to me, the cooler case. And again, now this gets back to the problem of empathy is that um even a, a bad character, if you get connected with him, you could adopt his perspective. I don't know, you ever watch um, uh, like uh, Breaking Bad or Sopranos? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so both of these shows at the core had uh, uh, Walter White, Tony Soprano, guys who are actually not good guys. You're not supposed to take them as like these wonderful superheroes to follow. But once you have them on the screen and you think about them and you get absorbed in them, all of a sudden, their interests become your your interests. There's no problem, you know. One of my favorite books is Lolita by Nabokov. You know, and 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 uh, the the main character of that, Humbert Humbert, is a pedophile. He's a pedophile pursuing the affections of this young girl. But by the time you're ten pages in the book, he's your guy. It's a first person narrative. You're in this head. Part of you says, you know, this is wrong. But part of you cheers them on. And so a good storyteller can use empathy to, to cause you to have a connection with characters who are just awful. And I suppose that manifests itself in the real world as bias. Yes, yes. All of this manifests itself as bias. As soon as one person steps out of a crowd and says, put yourself in my shoes, the whole world changes. And there, there's, a, there's experimental research on this. So um, Dan Batson, this great psychologist of empathy, has a study where, um, where he tells you about a little girl and she needs an operation. And, uh, and if she doesn't have an operation, then terrible things will happen to her. But she's on a, there, there's a, a lineup, a list, and she's low down on the list. And it's a fair list. Other kids are ahead of her. Should you move her up? And you say, no, if it's a fair list. But then he has a, a little twist. He says, Try to feel what it's like to be her. Put yourself in her shoes. Now things flip, and you want to move her up the list. You know, I have a hundred people applying for a job, and I'm looking at their files, and da da da. And then one person comes up to me and says, "Let me tell you my story." And all of a sudden, that person, he or she, is is my person, even though the other ninety nine also had stories. It's just that that the, by accident, the one who got to tell me theirs. Got to sway me, and and I think that these things are morally corrosive. I think they're very natural, but the amount of bias they incur in the world is terrible, and it sets up empathy in a very tight connection with something like racism. I mean, whose stories are you likely to hear? 
who's who's whose lives are you most likely to get connected with? Well, people around you, your group, your friends, your family. And those people are your your psychologists call your in-group. Empathy favors the in-group. But as a moral person, you might say, look, even if somebody doesn't have the good fortune to be one of my friends or to look like me, still that person has as much moral value as anybody else. And that's what empathy misses. Mm, it's totally removing rationality, isn't it? That rank rank order of whatever it is, first come, first serve, or people who need it the most of a, out of a group of that's 100. Right. Did you have a look at how empathy and compassion would have been used evolutionarily by our ancestors? Did you think about that? I did. It's a very interesting question. Um, so the idea of caring for others, some sort of compassion for others, um, it used to be thought that this is crazy non-Darwinian. Like, why would we ever have that? And there's a great puzzle for Darwin. Like, if if nature is red in tooth and claw, if the survival of, fit, of, of, the, of, of the fittest, um, why would we ever care for another? Some, it must be a miracle, some people said. Um, or other people say, oh, we don't really care for other people. Can't, you know, just cynics all the way down. But the neo-Darwinian view got really sophisticated about 100 years ago. And then people began to make sense over time of how you could evolve caring for others. So, for instance, one simple way is that if you take a sort of, if, if, once it was a genetic understanding, there's no hard and fast division between myself and my children who share half my genes mm -hmm. and my siblings who share half my genes and my cousins and nieces and nephews and so who share different fractions of my genes. So it behooves me from an evolutionary point of view to care about them as well, to really have them matter. So that's one thing they call a kin selection. A second thing is sort of reciprocal altruism. So suppose you and I work well together. You know, when we, when we kill an animal that's too big for either one of us to bring back, we work together and bring it back. We do this repeatedly. We both gain from our interaction. Well, then it makes sense for me to care about you. And so these mechanisms, which aren't infinitely broad, but specific, uh, I, think, I think can help capture where compassion comes from. Empathy is a little bit different. Nobody really knows why we have empathy, feeling the pain, feeling the feelings of others. Mm. One theory um, is that um, it actually has to do with parenting. That your connection with your young child or your young baby uh, helps if you have a truly empathic bond. And one reason to take this seriously is that the hormones that connect up um, with empathy are also involved in breastfeeding and childbirth. Okay. So, so empathy may be an adaptation for dealing with babies. <clears throat> Have you defined how empathy physiologically manifests itself in someone then? Um, you mentioned hormones there's, there. There's, there's studies of hormones. There's a way in which hormones um, can, can elicit empathy and drive empathy. What's interesting is you get a dissociation um, with a, a separation from compassion. So for instance, if in some studies they raise people's empathy, but then these people become more racist. And there's no contradiction. When you raise people's empathy, you're not ratcheting up their goodness. What you're doing is you're making them more connected to those they're connected to. Well, by the by, they'll be less connected to those they're not connected to. There are studies, there are brain imaging studies, um, some lovely work done in Germany, um, where they get people to be empathic, to put yourselves in the shoes of others, or to get people to care about others. And these show very distinct neural profiles. So I think there's by now good reason to believe that empathy and compassion run on different brain circuitry, are connected to hormones in different ways, and are kind of separate. And this is important, because if empathy and compassion were in inextricably linked, then me telling you to give up on empathy would be kind of crap advice, because then you also wouldn't care about people at all. So it's important for us to try and work out where the rubber meets the road between these two. It really is. It's important for us. It's important for somebody like me as, as a psychologist to understand it. But it's important for everybody to realize as they make, through their, make it through their regular life, where did their moral thoughts and feelings come from? You know, if you say, oh, you know, um, same-sex marriage is horrible, it's an atrocity. 
and I say, no, it seems fine, it seems perfectly fine. It, I think each of us should be able to look and say, well, why do we feel that way? Where's our arguments? We should be reflective about these things. You think this is just what a sort of psychologist philosopher would say, but, but I think a lot of our moral instincts, let's do this, let's punish these people, let's reward these people, are based on sort of brain processes and psychological processes that if we reflect upon them, we wouldn't trust them as much. There's a lot of things that people take for granted about our nature that, as you've identified, perhaps not even isn't optimal, is detrimental or is damaging. Mm -hmm. And I think, I honestly do think that these sorts of questions, I can see how they're inflammatory. I can see how the suggestion that racism for someone who's empathic might actually be natural that that they have to work against that because immediately yeah. it's such a slippery slope with bigot at the bottom as Douglas yeah. Murray says a bog of bigot at the bottom that you slip down to say well racism might be natural it's like okay well let's think about that we spent the vast majority of our evolutionary history in tribes of what 25 to 50 something like that absolutely terrified that there's some pathogen one valley away that's yeah. going to that's going to infect us and kill us yeah. or a tribe that'll come and take all of our food and rape all of our women or do you know what i mean like yep it's extremely i like whether or not racism is natural is kind of a fraught topic it depends what you think race is some people think that the the modern notion of race isn't something we've had for that long but certainly breaking the world up into us versus them mm -hmm. um and liking us and really hating <laughs> them is natural. There's there's now tons of studies, including from babies, but also from young children, cross-cultural studies, computer simulations of biological evolution. If there's one thing we know, my field knows, is that a propensity to break the world up into us versus them um, comes natural. So there's even these very clever studies. You get 100 people in a room, you know, like you and me, and we all have a coin, and we all flip our coin. So roughly half is heads, half is tails, go into different parts of the room. Then we ask, so what do you guys think, your tails, what do you think of the tails group? You think we're smarter. <laughs> Even putting myself aside, it so happens the tails group is smarter. The heads group, you seem to have like a, a bunch of dicks over there, like who, who likes that? And, and even you know, the most arbitrary ways of cutting us apart sets up psychological mechanisms where, where, we, where we split the world. And you're entirely right that it's that it's natural. Now, of course, you know, being natural, it could still be terrible. Mm. And so much that it, it, it's a bizarre fallacy to say since it's natural, it's good. Um, I think so much of what we do in the world with great success is we use our intelligence to sort of transcend our natural instincts. Hundred percent. We, we do this physically, you know, I'm wearing contact lenses because my eyes are bad. Um, we take antibiotics to fight infections and none of this was natural. Um, but we also do it psychologically. We also say like, for instance, we have, we say some forms of bias are wrong, so we make them illegal and we try to work around them and so on. Um, some sort of, you know, vengeance, revenge, the appetite for revenge is, is I think profoundly natural. Mm. But we say, don't have it, offload it to the cops. And, uh, you know, a guy, a guy cuts me off. No, I can't kill him. You know, I <laughs> well, what about, I could, you know, what about something yeah. that's, that's very natural that would be jealousy induced stealing? If you were to see someone else has something, why wouldn't you, why wouldn't you just take it? Like, well, I want that. It seems that that sort of impulse I think would be very natural, yeah. but you can imagine as we all get together in society, we all sit around as it were, this is like a reconstruction of things. And you say, you know, all that jealousy induced stealing, we're better off about it. And some hands go up and they say, I really like it. And then you say to the person, okay, um, what do you like more? A world in which you get to steal from everybody else, but they get to steal from you or a world where everybody gets to keep their stuff. And presumably people will say, on balance, let's all keep our stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, an example I use in one of my books is hitting people. Like, you know, um, sometimes it just feels great to hit people. I wish I could hit people. But the, the, my dislike of someone smacking me in the head is greater 
than the pleasure I get from hitting other people whenever I want to. So, so a no hitting rule on sort of flat out utilitarian grounds is pretty good. Yeah. And then you have, I suppose the, um, social enforcement, if there's some people that are hitters and some people that aren't, and then the ones that are hitters get found out by the ones that aren't. And then all the ones that aren't can then say, you're one of the hitters. You're not allowed to be in our group anymore. And then it goes back to tribalism again. And we're in the them and us group. Yes. Yes. I mean, so much of modern evolutionary theory and cultural evolution focuses on exactly these questions. So, so as you know, you can't develop a good society without some way of punishing people who aren't good. If we're all no hitters and you run around and smack everybody you want, your life is so much better than the rest of us. So we have to have some way of putting you in your place. And maybe we punish you. Maybe we shun you. Um, and then there's complexities. Like, for instance, suppose um, suppose you do bad stuff, and so you should be punished. But punishing is costly. What do we think about people who could punish but don't, who choose not to? Do we punish them? And there's a, there's a recent study find that we tend to punish people who don't punish people who deserve to be punished. <laughs> oh. <laughs> It's so complex, isn't it? It's so complex. One of the things that I, I was thinking there, again, rolling it forward to sort of the real, the real sort of worst parts of human impulses is how uh, the, the development of um, pushing people to have consensual sex and saying that unconsensual sex is something which is absolutely not allowed because I'm going to guess that for the vast majority of our evolutionary history, that, that also might not have been the case, not naturally. And all of these things, you know, when you, when you think about it, it, it is, when you look at it from a first principles perspective, it really is a, an interesting sort of question, a set of assumptions to, to look at as to why these things happen. Yeah. I mean, there, there's a general argument that Steve Pinker, many others have made, but Steve Pinker makes it in the strongest form that in a lot of ways, the world has been getting better and better and better and better. Um, you know, you think the world sucks now, and in many, many ways it does. But I would rather be, this is the best time in history, take the last, you know, last, say, 30 years, I think, to be an ethnic minority, to be, um, to be uh, physically disabled or mentally disabled, to be, um, to be a woman, to be a sexual, you know, to, to be. And, and a large reason why this is so is that we've been better at working out the very problems you're talking about. We're trying to understand consent. We're trying to, to figure out how to balance all sorts of things, but also a growing respect for people's rights and autonomy. You know, when I was, um, when I was young, nobody cared about bullying. You know, just consider, you know, kids smack each other and who cares. And now when my kids go to school, people are just really concerned about it. They say, you know, no kid should be bullied. And I'm thinking about it as a yeah, that makes sense. It's kind of it's kind of messed up that kids like punch each other. And nobody minds. Um, and similar thing issues about sexual harassment and sexual assault. I think I think we're learning to become better to each other. Now you know plainly there's a million ways in which we're we're crap to each other, but we're we're getting better. I think That's we're getting better in part by by smart people struggling with these questions. I suppose as well, I don't want to go down this road because I've swam down it too much recently, but I suppose that people who take complex issues like these plant a flag in one side of the ground or the other and reduce them down to their most simplistic forms and then attach them to a Twitter bio are really, really, really doing a disservice to the development. And I, I do think, as I've seen posted more recently, like within the last year to six months, concerns about where our real intellectual integrity and our, our real intellectual power is being placed. Recently went to go and see Douglas Murray give a, a talk with Lionel Shriver uh, literally two days ago for The Spectator. And his primary concern at the moment is that some of the best minds on the planet are spending their time thinking, including him, his most recent book, The Madness of Crowds, is about this, about socially constructed differences between gender, race, sex, sexuality, and I, I do, I do wonder how how much further along we might have been in thirty years. Obviously, we don't know how 
how much more time is going to be embroiled in some of these discussions. But yeah, when you talk about some of the things that you're doing, which are really uncovering the first principles of our nature, trying to work out real hard questions about why we are the way we are. And yet some super smart people, Douglas, Jordan Peterson, Ben Shapiro, you know, Sam Harris, they get embroiled in these things. That one tweet that he sent could have been sent about something else that wasn't that. Do you get what I mean? I, I do. I mean, you're raising a lot of issues here. So personally, actually, I find questions of, of, um, of gender and sex to be absolutely fascinating and underexplored. But I see a broader point, which is that, you know, my experience, I spent too much time on Twitter and, and so much of it is, um, people defending outlandishly extreme positions and then, you know, a sense of ideological purity on both sides, very strong. And then, um, you know, na- nasty attacks that don't bring us anywhere closer. And and I'm kind of an optimist about things. I think outside of social media, there's actually some excellent discourse and, and, and progress. But for a lot of these questions about human nature, particularly questions revolving around sex, revolving around ethnicity and race, um, they connect very much with our identities. And so they're not abstract theoretical questions to be bandied about maybe nor should they be because they affect people's people's real lives Mm. um i understand the point that jordan peterson was making about um wanting to have the freedom to describe people as he chose i also understand anger he got by people who felt that their identity was being belittled by somebody who had power over them so this is not getting it one way or another Mm. but but um these issues are as you say complicated and and to go back to what we were talking about racism, you know, I, everybody I know would say, oh well, racism, that sort of in-group out-group is just morally wrong. It's morally atrocious. But other forms of in-group out-group division, it's less clear. I love my children much more than I love you. More than that, I care for them. I would give them resources much more than I would give to you. Is this morally wrong? Well, maybe an extreme utilitarian like Peter Singer might say. Well, it's kind of, you know, it's human nature, but we could have done better. But I'm, I'm inclined to think that some, some sort of in-groups, like in-groups of family and in-groups of friendship, are actually intrinsically valuable. So I would draw a distinction between me saying, I only care, I care the most about white people. That's a kind of a crappy way to live your existence. On the other hand, if I was to say I care the most about my family and friends, that doesn't seem as odious. And what do you think? I agree. I think the interesting question is, where does the group of family and friends extend out to? At what yes. point? At what point does the rubber meet the road? Yes. And and our affiliations are complicated. I think I I think you know we all have multiple ones. I'm I'm a Canadian. I'm Jewish. I'm a professor. Um, I'm a man. You, you support know, a football you, team. You have sport. It'd be a hockey care. team. It'd that's be right. a hockey team in Canada, wouldn't it? That's right. That's right. That's, well, actually, I am. I am wearing a, a, a Toronto Blue Jays T-shirt. For nice. This, this no. If you got a, uh, but but we have multiple affiliations. To some extent, are harmless. I think sports teams actually just give the world more pleasure than any suffering. And sometimes they're they're you know when it comes to religion and race, they're, they're the most serious things in the world. And, and to go back to it, we recognize it's natural. We should never, ever infer that that means it's good. But it does mean that we have to be very prepared for an uphill battle when fighting it. You're literally combating human nature or combating what most people yes. take to be natural. Yes. And, you know, there's different responses. So you mentioned Sam Harris before. So I do think there's a powerful impulse or set of impulses leading us to be religious. One way you can do it is like Sam does, deal with it head on. You know, don't be religious anymore, it's stupid. Do something else. On the other hand, there are other people who say, no, we're never gonna get rid of this, so let's try to make religions more reasonable, more kind, defang them a little bit, a little bit less religious, more spiritual, tone them down. I think this uh, guy, uh, Alain de Bouton, argued it once in a talk I saw. He's, so uh, I have, uh, the listeners will be familiar. I've been reading his most recent book, which might interest you, uh, An Emotional Education. Um, oh, and thank you. 
It is. I'll link it to you once once we're done. It's absolutely fantastic. And very bizarrely, sorry to interject there, very bizarrely, one of the things that strikes me about his writing, and I went to go and see him speak in London the other week, is how I said I had crippling empathy. He has world-stopping compassion. Like that oh, guy, yeah. oh, unbelievable. The His ability to make you feel, to not only show his own vulnerability, but to make you feel like the failings that you have or like the things that are going on are as natural as can be. It, it's just, it's just a lovely, a really lovely guy. And his most recent book, anyone who's listening that needs something that's a, an easy read, but something that's nice and reflective and emotional education linked in the show notes below, along with all of uh, Professor Bloom's books, of course. Um, of course. Of course. <laughs> yeah. But when so, you've done all my books, go check out. Go check out that one. Yeah, for sure. Um, so one, one question actually that I've been thinking. I wonder, have you considered why we still love people who have passed away? Oh. It's a question that got brought up in Interstellar, actually, yes. if, you, if you've really sort of listened, because it's a tiny, it's like two lines, three lines long in this tiny little bit, and they're talking about um, one of the astronauts is, is saying, I know this person is alive. They're saying, should we... Should we make the rational utilitarian choice about what we do with the mission or should we do this other one? And they're talking, referencing a tiny little bit of uh, evolutionary uh, psychology and a few other little bits and pieces. And one of the things that she brings up is why is it that we love people that have passed away? I wonder whether you'd considered that. Such a good question. I was, um, I was talking to my, uh, my partner the other day and we were talking if, if she were to die. And I said in some way, well, I would have loved you. And she caught me and said, why the past tense? Won't you still love me? And I said, well, you know, you don't exist anymore. Can you continue to have feelings for somebody that doesn't exist anymore? I don't believe in life after death. I, you know, so, so she'd really literally be gone. Um, maybe a kind of, saccharine response, but one that might be true, which is if you know somebody well enough, in a in a non-trivial sense, they continue to live with you. They 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 live inside your head. They uh, it's not merely passive memories. It's a way in which they imbue the world around you. You often see this in bad TV shows and movies, of which I watch a lot of them, where where our, our guy, uh, you know, ends up talking to his departed wife, something like that. But um, but I think to some extent they continue to live with us. But I haven't I haven't thought of that deeper than that. That's a good question. It's a little bit like the the character in your book, right? Because you you extrapolate out from that character this person who doesn't exist who actually never existed but they live inside of your head right you you think about what they would have done or could have done or should have done if they were in the situation that you're in yeah it's a little bit like that yeah yeah we we you know our heads are populated with all sorts of people and uh and you know i i understand this is not universal but i do spend a terrible amount of time having conversations in my head with People I know, people I want to, you know, if I if I'm experiencing something and I want to tell somebody about it in the future, I'll sort of be narrating it mm -hmm, as, mm -hmm. as I'm having it. So, so yeah, our heads are very crowded. I agree. Moving on to what you're working on now, at some point within the next two years, there yes. will probably be a new Paul Bloom book out. Yes. What can you tell us about it? Um. Its title uh, may be The Pleasures of Suffering. It may be a sweet spot and then a helpful, sem uh, help helpful subtitle like uh, Suffering, Pleasure, and the Good Life. Mm -hmm. And it will be about why we are drawn towards suffering. And it will look at it at two levels. One level is the pleasures we get from certain forms of suffering. So I'm thinking of sort of mundane things like we eat spicy foods that burn our mouths. We, uh, we like saunas and hot baths and roller coaster rides. Uh, Halloween's coming, and people are going to go to haunted houses to have the, 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 the terrified to be scared. Uh, some people engage in consensual sex involving some degree of pain and degradation, humiliation. Um, why, where do all those appetites come from? They're so paradoxical. 
there's not a huge puzzle to go back to sort of things that are explained. You know, somebody would look at you funny if you say, I wonder why people like ice cream. Mm -hmm. And they'd say, well, dude, ice cream is delicious. Mm -hmm. You know, okay, that's, it's not, the details need to be worked out, but that's, that makes sense. But then you ask, you know, why do people like eating spicy food so hot? It makes them soaked with sweat and they're crying. Some people do. So that's half the book. The other half of the book is sort of asking a broader question, which is what do we want out of life? And I want to argue it's not just pleasure or even happiness. It's a deeper form of meaning or purpose. And for that, suffering arises again because we know we're living a meaningful life when we're suffering to some extent. Why? Any project, any, because any project of any value requires effort. It requires the possibility of failure. It requires difficulty, often conflict, often anxiety. You know, having kids is the pure example of this, which is you've got to be an idiot. Everybody knows if you're going to have kids, it's going to be tough. But this toughness is tied in so tightly with its reward. If you told me about something you did and you said it was easy peasy, no pain at all, no suffering at all. I would guarantee you, you're not going to take much of value from it. How hard could it have been? How significant could it have been? So, so I think meaningful, difficult life pursuits will require suffering. It's, it's wrapped in the very notion of difficulty. I think there's some really broad implications for how people live their lives there, talking about overcoming obstacles and, and suffering Certainly, I know for me that when my life gets too comfortable, that's the only time that a little existential sort of tick at the back of my head starts to starts to appear. But when I'm <clears throat> constantly working on something that is both challenging and worthwhile, that really doesn't occur. Yeah, that's a, that's one aspect of what I'm interested in. So um, this guy, uh, uh, Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi, developed the concept of flow, which is what you're alluding to. And a flow state is when you're just really into something and it's just perfect, it's just right. It's, if it's too easy, it's boring. It's just fun, it's boring, whatever, like watching TV, watching bad TV. But if it's too difficult, it's frustrating and you're just sick of it. Flow state is just a Goldilocks state right in between where if you do it right, you lose track of time. You strike, you, you, the level of difficulty is such, it captures you and it captures your consciousness. People in these states say, you know, you go for a long time, you're working on your book or, or, or some project, and then you forget to eat. You forget to eat, you lose, you lose track of appointments, you don't sleep, whatever. And that's, that's sort of, that's one aspect of what I'm talking about. But you don't have that unless you have difficulty. Because that needs to be a challenge. It needs to be a challenge, that's right. I'm trying to relate that to people that like to get spanked with leather things during sex and wear <laughs> ridiculous outfits. I want to see, I want to hear the flow states for BDSM. Uh, I was going to say sufferers there, but it's not, is it BDSM fans? Well, I'll make, I'll make the connection for you, actually. <laughs> I, think that I, can't wait gonna, to, I cannot wait to hear this. They're not going to be quite the same story. But here's, but here's um, a connection. It's not my own. It's by the psychologist Roy Baumeister, which is one theory of what goes on with BDSM is that it liberates you from your consciousness. So if you're like a lot of people, I'll speak for myself, I won't speak for you, but I'm in my head all the time. My kind of my 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 anxieties, my nerves, my self-talk, my memories, my responsibilities, things I'm ashamed of, things you know, all stuff is in my head. Um, one way to empty your head of all of this is to um, to get really good at meditation, and maybe after ten years of meditative practice, you can empty out that head of yours for a while. But here's a way somebody could do it really quickly. They could slap you in the face really hard. Now, you're not going to like being slapped in the face, but I'll tell you, when that slap hits for a second afterwards, your head is clear. You're, uh, you know, there, there's this great quote by, um, you know, by a, a dominatrix saying, nothing captures one's attention more than a whip. 
And so the idea is, of B, one theory of BDSM is that at both the physical level, and to some extent the psychological level, it's an escape from yourself. It's in some way, it's the opposite of meditation. Meditation, you sit, you, you, you kind of, you know, you're just stuck in your head, observing and trying to deal with it and like that. The BDSM, along with things like uh, intense exercise, um, some drug experiences. Extreme sports? Extreme sports, yeah. You know, I'm not a big martial arts guy, but the first time I ever did Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, I'm there uh, rolling with somebody, first time in my life. And so this goes on for a while, and I'm like, you know, I'm no good at it, but just, you know, getting twisted into a pretzel by a guy. And, but I realized afterwards that during that, I don't know, three minutes, five minutes, I thought of nothing else. I thought, of, my head was clear. And, uh, and, and that's, I understand, is what BDSM can do for you. There's not many situations now, you know, to the listeners that, are, that, are- tuned in at the moment think about the last time that you didn't have any thoughts other than the one thing that you were doing or other than any one thing for more than about 30 seconds yeah if you held a gun to my head right now and told me when that was i'd I'd have to do a fair bit of work and so if you're ever fortunate enough to get mugged there you go maybe you'll have that something now now obviously there's bad sides to being mugged but, but it's a wonderful, one, wonderful meditative but, practice, though, of being but, <laughs> but the But the one good side is during that period, you're in the moment. You know, and and that moment of the slap. Now, you know, there's all other things going on. And, it, you know, you're really, this is the case your mileage really may vary. But um, but I did some rock climbing. Again, I'm not serious. My son is a serious rock climber. I'm awful at it. But it's the same thing. The mixture of fear, the, the need to solve a problem, the physicality of it all. You're not thinking of anything else. But you don't have that unless you have a task that's powerful enough to take away from your consciousness, to, 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 to devote your entire focus. One way to do that is through extreme difficulty. Another way to do that is extreme pain. And that's what they have in common. It's, I tell you what, I did, not, I did not think that you were going to be able to draw those two together, but you managed to do it. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, I, again, going back to the uh, going back to the extreme physical exercise thing. I'm a CrossFitter myself. I have a lot of friends that do it, and the place that I see my athletes, the, the, my friends, put themselves into on a weekly basis, a daily basis in the gym is Jordan, who's the owner of the the gym that we have, and. It's a yearly ritual that the final workout of the Open, which tends to be a very particular kind of time domain, a power endurance workout, which is like mm-hmm. a sort of a 2K rowish kind of um, area, maybe a seven to 10 minute or five to 10 minute, just go full go. And um, <clears throat> every single year, there's a, it's almost like a meta meme now about the fact he's straight outside to go and throw up in the drain, but he does it every single year. He'll go and do it. And this guy is able to choose to put himself in that place in front of a crowd of people who all know that he's going to throw up and he knows that he's going to throw up and he doesn't do it at any other time. And it's this workout. And and you just think, why? But I know why. I know why. And that's one of the situations I can say when, when you haven't got anything left, there there is, there is something that's oddly, oddly so satisfying about that. So have you looked again to ask the same question? Have you looked evolutionarily? Why? Why that's the case? The evolutionary benefits of that kind of thing, I have looked. I am not really that close to finding an answer. I'm excited it's for you a, to find one. I think that would be fascinating. It's a great question. I mean, there's something else going on in suffering that your story is bringing out, which is sometimes it's social. So sometimes it's social in that you're signaling something about yourself. Your friend is signaling that he could put in all he has. That's going to be proud of. It's not a bad thing to show your, your friends to. Um, you'd be signaling your courage, your endurance, your piety. There's all these religious rituals involving showing suffering. And it, it's meant to show your your um, your subservience to God, your love of your of, of your fellow ethnic group, your fellow religious group. So suffering can serve many purposes. The Puritan work ethic, I suppose, like that. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Well, you see that 
as well in the the hustle and grind culture of young entrepreneurs now, right? Mm-hmm. The the sort of Gary Vaynerchuk approach of sleeping five hours a night and when you want to succeed as much as you want to breathe, a lot of that's signaling. A lot of it's signaling. And then, of course, there's, I imagine, in these communities, there's always a counter signaler. Somebody who says, you know, look, yeah, I just got nine hours of sleep. <laughs> I'm going to work a bit and I'm going to go for a walk in the park. <laughs> Chill and, out. And what, they're, and what they're saying is, I am so good. I don't, you know, it's basically the equivalent of the young dot com guy going to a meeting, you know, wearing wearing a hoodie and sweatpants, which is you guys have to wear suits to signal their wealth and everything. I am. And and, you know, there's no such thing as not giving a shit. There's just signaling you don't give a shit. (laughs) (laughs) That is that is a fantastic quote. There is no such thing as giving a shit. There is just signaling that you don't give a shit. Exactly. I'm gonna I'm gonna use that. Um, yeah, I, you know what I think increasingly about as I, as I spend time speaking to guys like yourself and uh, Robin Hansen from Elephant in the Brain mm-hmm. and Rick Hansen and a lot of these people who think about um, William von Hippel guys it's, really do think mm-hmm. about sort of why we come from that and Robert Green was on recently and this that and the other. Mm-hmm. Increasingly now. And I wonder whether this is the same for you, understanding people's motivations with a, at least a little bit more nuance than I do, probably a massive amount more understanding than I do. I see people sometimes like WWE characters, you know, like mm-hmm. they've got this persona that they're playing and this is the brand that they've attached their flag to. Yeah. And when you draw it back, you can see the lineage of why that happened, that, oh, well, this fits my particular ethnic group, body shape, background, working class, whatever it might be. Do you find, yeah. do you find yourself becoming sort of fascinated with the people that you meet and trying to learn their, their backstory and, and stuff like that? Do you try and apply a lot of the things that you learn to the people that you meet? I'm really interested in, in, in the people I meet and building what you, what you're saying. I think on social media, there's a, a sort of narrowing down, a stripping down of people's characters. So people are always, always, without exception, much more interesting in person than they are in social media. It's not the same for writers, actually. I've I've met enough writers who I admire, mm. and I kind of wish I never met the writer. I love the <laughs> I like the books better. Yeah, the books okay. are so such so, so a sophisticated, gorgeous worldview, and you meet the writer, and he's kind of like a schmo like you. Um, <laughs> Like, like, like me, I mean, not, not, not <laughs> like both of us, like both of us, perhaps. Um, but, but yeah, there, there is, um, I think Robin Hansen is right about how pervasive signaling is. I think he's wrong with saying, and that's all there is, which he often says. I think that, um, that, but, but he's right to think that there's a backdrop in everything we do online and in person where we're not only doing it, we're also saying, and this is me doing it. I'm the guy who does it. So, so I tell you, oh, Brexit frightens me. And I'm telling you Brexit frightens me because it does frighten me. I want you to know it. But I'm also signaling I am the kind of guy who would say Brexit frightened me. And, 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 and there's that work. And for both those of us who are psychologically healthy, I mean, only the, the mentally ill or toddlers don't do this. We're social beings. So we are sensitive to how we portray ourselves. And you're right, I think, that because of this, there's often a forceful oversimplification. Um, one of the, you know, I've, I've had the experience many times of getting into an argument with somebody online or something and thinking, what a dope. And then you meet them and they're far smarter than you would have expected. And they're, they're far more nuanced. And, you know, it, it's, and in some sense, it's their fault. Sometimes people's, uh, what they prove to signal is a sort of dopiness <laughs> in the service of some other goal. They want to appear to be true believers or, or morally pure or so on. You know, you go back to the moral thing, which is you, you tend to get stuck up and think everybody else has a sort of set conventional moral views of a sort, whatever your community is. And my community is pretty liberal, so I think everybody has the same sort of liberal views. But you meet somebody close up and you become friends with them. And sooner you realize everybody has at least one way in which their morality isn't what you'd expect. You know, they're extremely right wing, 
but yet they're very pro-trans. I was telling you, I think they're trans, you know, they're, they're extreme lefties, but they hate unions. And, you know, you find this and it's always interesting. Again, that lack of nuance in conversation is not allowing people to be, take their ideologies or their, their worldviews piecemeal that you need to swallow it wholesale. That's right. And that's a shame. That's right. But nuance to some extent isn't something that you could display in front of a largely unfriendly crowd. And if you have any, if, if people are looking at you on social media, a lot of them are looking just to, to want you fail and embarrass yourself and contradict yourself and perform some sort of heresy. And so it's not a best time to fly your nuance. You know, you're better, better in the presence of friends or people who, who you trust. Yeah, because nuance to a, a crowd which is not on your side will probably come across like a lack of conviction. That's right. That's right. A lack of conviction, incoherence, um, even saying I don't know to, to, to an unfriendly crowd is risky. Do you think Apolo- that- Apologies, by the way, are famously risky, which is, you know, everybody says to, to politicians, really, apologize, apologize, apologize. And then when they do apologize for the rest of their lives, they said, oh, he admitted he was wrong. It was important. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can't do right for doing wrong there. Yeah. I wonder whether, because this, it's a cliche now to say long-form conversations are missed. This is the reason for the podcasting platform taking this growth because there is a hunger out there for people who want. But I do wonder whether it's less about the long-form conversation and more to do with the fact that it is a open battleground to discuss ideas without... Uh, an audience which is there immediately giving you feedback, which immediately biases you towards saying things that might get a laugh or get a whatever, because you're still going to have want that at least a little bit from the other person. You're going to want to say things that make you sound X, Y, Z to the other person. But I wonder whether these, the increasing popularity of these sorts of conversations online is something to do with the fact that it is this nice Petri dish environment to have a discussion where and nuance can be discussed in a way. I never thought about that, but I think you're right. I think you're right. I think one of the appeals of a, of a podcast is just listening to a conversation where ideas could be sketched out. And, you know, as you know, podcasts come in different flavors. Mm-hmm. There's sort of a straight interview sometimes where somebody, as it were, has a list of 50 questions in front of them and they try not to be too obvious as they look down and they do that and like that. But then there's doing what you and I are doing, we're just talking. And and when done right, I think that's very powerful. Mm, I agree. It, I, the, well, the topic itself might be interesting, but I think you're right. And more generally, it gives me kind of a warm feeling to hear people talk about interesting ideas. Like, this is how we should be doing these things. I think so. And I think as well, as you've said there, and as everyone's seen online, right? Like, Douglas Murray has this line where he says... Um, People can lose their careers for saying the thing, uh, for not saying the thing that nobody said until yesterday. <laughs> and yes, the problem with that is that in a, a sample size that's only 30 second segments, perhaps on the news or that's whatever it is now, 300 characters or something that's on Twitter, yeah. it's very easy to take things out of context. Now, that's not to say that I've had clips from this podcast that get taken out of context, but when you spread it across the sample of a one-hour conversation, someone can say something that's wrong or that isn't fully formed, and then the other person might press them on it, and then that allows them to, you know what I mean? It, it, it's, it's less, the peaks and troughs are more spread out. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, this is that's I, I agree with that. It's another reason why podcasts of roughly this length seem like a good idea. Speaking of which, that's around about the length that's right. So, <laughs> Professor Bloom, let us um, let us crack on, and I will uh, I will let the listeners have a look at some of your work, which will be linked in the show notes below. If they want to hassle you online and send you tweets that are 300, 300 characters long, where should where should they head? Uh, it's uh, Paul Bloom at Yale. 
cool. And is there a website or a blog that you that you have at the moment? Nah, nah. You Google me to find my faculty website, but I don't. I don't run a blog or anything like that. Cool. Well, Twitter now can be that, right? Twi- Twitter is kind of that. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. I love it. Hey, thanks for having me on. This was great. Man, it was so much fun. I, I can't wait. I, I know you've got, as you mentioned before we started, you have some uh, some chaos occurring in on your side of the pond from like November 2020. Um, but yeah, I really, I, as soon as you've got the, the next book out, I'd absolutely love to have a discussion. I'm sure the audience will be thrilled I, as well. That would be terrific. I'll be back. Amazing. Thank you very much. To the listeners, if you enjoyed the episode, you know what to do. Like, share, and subscribe down below. Links to Against Empathy, How Pleasure Works, all of Professor Bloom's socials and everything else we've spoken about will be in the show notes below. But for now, thank you very much. Thank you.